This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to independent film. Inside, you'll find tools, tips, and tricks vetted by industry professionals, independent films that will inspire your creativity, filmmaking events where you can rub elbows with filmmakers just like you, and so much more. The best part of it all, it's absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe, and within a few clicks, you'll be part of our newsletter community. Again, that's www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, a free bi-weekly newsletter from Chris and Nick at Bonsai Creative. You're listening to Make It, the Indie Film Podcast. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Owens. I am the artistic director of the Calgary International Film Festival. Uh, you might know me from a decade of being the artistic director at Nashville Film Festival. And presently, I am working on the 22nd annual Calgary International Film Festival, which happens September 22nd to October 2nd of 2022. Brian Owens, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm super excited to have this conversation. I want to read a very short bio uh, for you. And of course, as I always say, this is the internet. So if you want to amend to this and make corrections, feel free. Brian Owens became artistic director of the Calgary International Film Festival in 2018. Prior to that, he served as the artistic director for the Nashville Film Festival for a decade. After seven years as an online critic, He began his career in the film festival world when he founded the Indianapolis International Film Festival in 2004. He has served on festival juries across the world, including the Sulmani Film Festival in Iraq, Kurdistan, Cleveland International Film Festival, Oxford Film Festival, and more. The 2022 Calgary International Film Festival will be held September 22nd through October 2nd in as uh, I once heard on a Virginia Slims commercial when I was a child, you've come a long way, baby. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, how was that bio? <laughs> uh, that's pretty darn accurate. Uh, <laughs> I would like to say I was hoping I could update the uh, juries, uh, but because uh, I was actually invited to be on the jury at the Edinburgh Film Festival Whoa. in June of 2020. Uh, which of course that didn't happen. So right, yeah. Well, they yeah. <laughs> they, did, they just canceled it, or did they do it online? They just went to uh, online, but they dropped their competitions. So oh, got uh, it. there was no jury at that point at all. So yeah, uh, I, I was curi- I was curious about that actually, Brian. And by the way, we're going to hop around a little bit. It's kind of what we do here on the Make It Podcast. But <laughs> I was curious about that since you brought it up. You joined Calgary at such a unusual time you didn't know it was going to be unusual um but i I actually remember reading and and watching some interviews of you preparing for the 2019 and 2020 festivals and you know i'm watching it with eyes that know what happened next uh (laughs) how did you handle that uh when when Uh, you know i mean 
2019, I'm, I'm glad at least I got 2019 under my belt. So there was at least that one, one mm-hmm. sort of normal year. Um, and it was interesting going into 2020 because of course, like it was the moment they canceled South by Southwest, like everyone in every film festival, everywhere, you know, went into a panic. Um, and uh, once we sort of got established in our home offices and, and caught our breath, um, it was actually our friends at the Cleveland International Film Festival that w- they were the ones that sort of got off the ground having the virtual festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, I'm good friends with uh, Bill Gunsler, who at the time was their artistic director. Uh, he's since moved on to another job. But um, I was able to touch base with him after they were completed. And that the advice that he was able to give led me to come back to the team and let them say, the word cancel is off the table. We will not be canceling the 2020 Calgary International Film Festival. Um, so we, working together with our executive director, my programming team, and our ops department, our technical department, um, we established the, the, the theory or the concept of uh, like a dial or a sound mixer. And depending on what health care in the province would let us do you know we would either dial up in cinema or dial down in cinema and it could go from zero and a hundred virtual or somewhere in between we were actually at a space in 2020 where we could open up our theatrical spaces we had to cap no matter the size of the house at 100 people um or 30 percent uh, if it was a smaller theater. So for instance, there was one house that we had that it was a sellout at 35 tickets. Oh, um, yeah. you know, so yeah. So you obviously we had to adjust revenues. We had to adjust budgets in a major way, but we were able to pull off a festival and, um, it felt like after that 2020 festival, but I have to admit that there was sort of this feeling like if we just did that, we can do anything. And so in 2021 rolled around, we sort of like, we've played this game now, <laughs> you know, we know what we're doing. So we were just able to make adjustments and, and we learned a lot of lessons heading into 2022. Yeah, it's remarkable. And even at 35 seats, that was better than what was happening stateside at festivals. So that, that you know, I'm sure that gave you some confidence as well, knowing that, you know, there were, you know, levels of flexibility in Canada that, that, that probably weren't going to be experienced uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, in the States. Uh, I'd love to take you back to uh, hopefully a very warm place. I'm curious, what is the big pickle at the Royal Theater? And uh, <laughs> why did it become so popular? <laughs> oh, okay. So the, the Royal Theater in Danville, Indiana, you're talking. Um yeah. So I remember the theater very fondly, but I was never, I was never a big pickle person. So I can't really, <laughs> can't really answer uh, the big pickle. Uh, but no, you're talking about the space where um, like, I, and I still joke with my mother about her judgment. Um, but when my mother took me to see Jaws when I was six years old. Um, so that was like the place where like I cut my movie teeth. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and it's kind of cool in the sense that like my cousin's, daughter like when she was in high school actually worked part-time at that theater uh it's still plugging away to this day which i i I love because like i said that was my that was my cinematic playground as a child so uh while i was not a partaker of the big pickle (laughs) so i can't miss that part but yeah the royal theater still means a lot to me 
And they're still selling it, still their best seller, except it's two dollars now. And maybe oh, yeah. Yeah. maybe it was fifty cents back, you know, in the day. But oh, it was um, probably a quarter back in the day. But yeah, quarter, still yeah. to this day, I'm not I, I'm not a big pickle person in general. Like I just don't <laughs> eat pickles very often. So <laughs> I was curious because like I wonder if they serve that in a boat because it's so unusual to serve that at a movie theater, or if they if served it, or if they served it deep fried like a fair. Um. Oh, I know that they didn't have deep fried pickles then, although they're really popular in Indiana now. They, 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 they certainly grew in popularity. If I remember right, uh, they were sort of a little cardboard, yeah, like a little cardboard boat, like they'd the pull boat. them out with the tongs. Yeah, and then put them in one of those and you'd take it in and like, and it, it was terrible in a quiet movie though, because like, you're like, because those things are like, <laughs> you know, like, somebody like starts chomping down in the middle of a quiet scene. Nah, you know, like you got to wait for the loud scenes, but you're going to be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> People from this generation go back and they watch Jaws and they don't know what the big deal was. But if you watched it when it came out, it was one of the scariest movies you could watch. Oh yeah. It was it was oh. terrifying. Uh was that the movie because I I'm curious how film found you or you found film coming from Danville, Indiana which has less than 5,000 people in it now. So when you grew up, maybe even less. Uh, yeah, no, it's always been a, a small town. It's a little bigger now. Um, it, it was, I actually remember going to the, the first movie that I ever went to see was uh, The Rescuers uh, at a drive-in theater on the west side of Indianapolis. And I believe I was four, um, then three or four, somewhere in that range. But I remember going. And so I was automatically like, okay, I love movies. These are fun. Uh, I begged my mother to take me to Jaws um, at intermissions. This tells you how long ago that was. Uh, I, I actually asked her if we could go home. And she said, no, I bought the ticket. You're watching the movie. <laughs> and in the end, I'm so glad that she did. Because like, I, like after that, I was like, there used to be a Jaws game where like, like there was, you try, like you had a little hook and you try to get something out of Jaws mouth before it would snap shut. Like, so I had to have yeah. that. And like, like Jaws toys. Like, so you know, I, I, it was a scary movie. It was certainly terrifying, but yeah, it was after, I think after that too, um, I wanted to see everything. Like I wasn't, you know, like I still like animated movies. I still like uh, scary movies, but I, you know, even before high school, I was like gorillas in the mist and like, like heavy dramas were of interest to me. I liked all sorts of movies from a very early age. Um, and like watching them like on golden pond, like what kid watches on golden pond, but like, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, I yeah. grew up watching all of those movies. And so, um, even as a youngster, like the Oscars was like appointment television for me. Like, but was like, that through your mom and dad or like, or, or did, how did you find that? I just, cause the kid just wouldn't know when the Oscars were going to play or they wouldn't know how to find on golden pond. I would assume. Um, well, my parents were, they, they were not big in cinema, Mm-hmm. Like moviegoers, they would take me if I wanted to go. Yeah, but like we had like the VCR with the long wired, like you know, like yeah, yeah, like yeah. I think my dad paid like thirteen hundred dollars for like VCR, <laughs> like and so like we would rent like movies left and right, left and right, left and right, and that's also I think part of it too is like they let me pick out. He was trying to get my why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they would, um, you know, but then my dad would like get his sort of grown up movies like, like Midnight Express. I watched Midnight Express way too early. At, you yeah. know. But um, it was also cool in the sense that they let me have my own sense of judgment as to whether a movie was right. Unless it was like, you know, 
too sexy, then there was no, but with just like language violence, not a big deal. Um, and so, like I said, I was watching, I think grown up movies at a young age. And so I, I really grew to appreciate those. And like, uh, I remember like, you know, I wasn't, you know, Star Wars is still one of my favorite movies. Like when we watched the Oscars that year, I was not upset that Star Wars didn't win. Cause I'm like, that's not really an Oscar movie. Like, <laughs> even at a very young age, I kind of knew what was an Oscar movie and what was. <laughs> that's, uh, Actually, pretty incredible. You know, it's funny because I, we had that in our house uh, that sort of appointment viewing for Oscar night. My mom would print out these sheets and we would all sort of check the box to see who we thought would win before it came on and then compare our, our accuracy after the fact. And, you know, it was a big deal. And the only thing outside of just bringing the family together and having fun through film the the thing I suppose I could point to is that somewhere that was a desire and dream of my mom's that was unfulfilled was mm-hmm. to be in entertainment, to be a storyteller, to be someone who was able to tell stories. And this was her way of, of sharing that desire, that dream with everybody without oppressing everyone with the disappointment in that. Right. Right. Um, Because you have to be very careful who you complain to in life. (laughs) Yes. And and, and what you, you know, sort of what you bring um, or what you put on their shoulders, on their conscious. And it can be abusive sometimes because you're you're taking what's weighing you down and weighing someone else down with it. But you can find these creative ways to share that stuff. And I think that's kind of you know, what she was, what she was doing. So I can, I can certainly relate to that. I hope um, that this comes off the right way because I mean it in the best positive and way um, in the best possible way. But why did it take you to start the Indianapolis international film fest? Like why didn't that already exist by 2004? Well, there was a film festival in Indianapolis, so I don't want to like take too much credit. It was, but it, it was the Heartland Film Festival. Okay. At the time, they've since diversified more, but at the time, it specifically was a festival uh, intended to celebrate and uplift the human spirit. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that meant movies that I liked, a lot of them would never be eligible to play yeah. in that festival. And so those seven years that I was doing uh, online movie criticism um, in 2002 made just enough advertising revenue to help cover a trip to the Toronto international film festival. Yep. And, um, and initially the whole idea was just like, I'll just, you know, because that's where all the Oscar movies come out. Like a lot of them get their first releases. I'm just going to do reviews and that coverage will just draw more audience. But the first two movies I saw were uh, the North American premiere of Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next one was the world premiere of the English dub version and the North American premiere of Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. And I just came away from that experience and said like, ah, this is what Indianapolis truly needs. Um, and we intentionally scheduled on the opposite half of the year from Heartland. So we were trying to like, run in and step on their toes or take anything away from them. But we just wanted to have a home to bring movies in like old boy, like, you know, like the, the, yeah. that we're just not ever going to be able to fit into Heartland's mission. And um, 
we found support. Thankfully, a friend of mine um, was uh, owned an art gallery and his co-owner uh, also ran a foundation. Uh, his name is Jeremy Ephraimson, the Ephraimson Foundation. So I wrote up a business plan, sat down with him at a coffee shop and uh, lo and behold, he liked the idea and wrote us that first check to help us establish the, the corporation. Um, and by 2004, it was, we had 65 submissions and we played 27 movies, but it was a film festival. And um, it was amazing in the sense that I had targeted two movies because I knew their release dates would work. And one was one that I saw at Toronto um, the previous fall that he was getting a spring release called the story of the weeping camel. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a Mongolian documentary about camel herders. It would go on to get an Oscar nomination for best documentary. Uh, and I, I where I, I'm going to brag about my negotiating skills because I'm still not exactly sure how I pulled it off, but I got it as the closing night film, Lars von Trier's Dogville. Um, sold out a 600 seat theater in our very first year. Um, and it was after that, that like the next year I could say like, well, last year here was our highlight titles. And all of a sudden people are like, Oh, then you've got to have this movie. You've got to have this movie. And, um, you know, by, uh, we had about 2000 people in that first year. And then by the fifth year, it would be my final year in Indianapolis. We'd gotten close to 10,000 in the audience, uh, which was, it was only a, a nine day festival. So, um, and only on three screens, like it was like, so we kept it, you know, tried to keep the growth under control. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it was just, it was, it was a great experience. Um, and so I said, it wasn't the first film festival in Indianapolis, but it was one that sort of like really focused on bringing international titles and, and varying degrees of darkness and light both. Well, I, I completely agree. And the success you had there was remarkable. And I, I wonder how growing up in a small town sort of helped you with that. I mean, where did the work ethic come from? I know you, so before we hit the record button on this, I talked about you being, you know, the hardest working guy in the festival world. And there's a lot of hardworking people in the festival world. You've had incredible outcomes everywhere you've went. Where did that come from? Where did the drive and, and passion and the ability to execute come from? I do have to give credit to my parents, both. Um, they both own their own businesses at, at times in their lives. My father was a contractor and my mother was a caterer. Um, and they also, like, that meant that I also helped, right? So I learned right, yeah. books. I, you know, like, I learned to spread, like, spreadsheets when spreadsheets were on paper. Uh, <laughs> like, so I would help. You were literally uh, spreading sheets. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I got to help, like, you know, do that. My dad would take me to the construction site every now and again. I was not very good at that part. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I helped in my mom's catering business. I learned how to decorate cakes. I knew how to serve uh, at, a, at an early age. So I think it was that sort of, you do what you need to do to get it done. So like starting from Indianapolis too, and we had a, we were all volunteer run. Um, so I wasn't making a salary for those first five years, just to, just so people know. So I also have to give credit to my partner, Michael Detner. Um, for being supportive during those right. first years, uh, for helping me get the career off the ground. Um, but you know, like when I would talk to people, like, yeah, I'm the I, I was at that time. I was the guy who brought in the money too. Thankfully, I don't do that part anymore. Uh, but you know, I I got the movies. We 
um, I got the sponsors, uh, but I also wasn't afraid to hang up posters and go around town and flyer cars, right? Like it was like uh, every aspect of the job, you know, and then as I moved to Nashville and to here, there's other people to do those parts of the work now, thankfully. And, but, but you know what? If somebody needs help hanging a poster, I'm still there to help hang the poster. Like I'll do whatever it takes to uh, get a festival off the ground. Right. And the foundational things. And we're going to talk more about that as we go along in the conversation. But I do want to turn our attention to SIF, which is one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on. I know uh, it's coming up again this year. And, you, and it's been no different than anywhere else you've been. Uh, you've turned this into a hit. I think you, you had, I think I read that you had 35,000 attendees, which is just an unbelievable amount of people to manage uh, at a festival <laughs> and uh, just a remarkable increase from where it was when you got there in, in 2018. So let's talk a little bit about the Calgary International Film Festival. Uh, what what are the minimum sort of production skills you look for when you accept a film? Um. <sighs> It's really interesting because, yeah, there's going to be basics from a, from a production level that can get you knocked out immediately. Um, there, there, there's, there's a joke, but there's truth in the joke that I, I have. And it, it's, a, it, it's a test that is or a theory that has been proven true <laughs> every time I test it. Bad fonts and opening credits always equal bad film. <laughs> like, like, so um, now it doesn't mean sometimes good opening credits can also lead to a bad film, but bad opening credits always lead to a bad film. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I think that I find from a production standpoint that gets the most overlooked and is the most likely thing to get your film rejected is bad sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so many people are so concentrating on, on, on the script, which you have to get right uh, on the acting, which you also have to get right that, and the visuals, they think of it, of a cinema being solely a visual medium when it is, and a poor sound mix can knock a movie out right away. Now, that said, sometimes we get movies that will tell you up front, this is not final sound. We're working on sound between you watching it and before your festival. Um, and so you have to kind of trust them on that front. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the one thing that I think can draw an otherwise good film. Uh, uh, from the, the accept pile to the reject pile because um, they just didn't get the sound right. Yeah, it's a great point. And there's a lot to dig into there because one thing that Nick and I, Nick, my co-founder at Bonza, we always say is you can't teach taste. And when you, when you find a film that has really terrible cover art or key art, uh, bad font, well, that's a taste issue a lot of times because they, there was nothing skill wise that prevented them from picking the next font over that, that made better sense. And so you just realize, Oh, we're about to get into a film with a filmmaker who hasn't polished and figure out, figured out their voice yet. When you talk about sound, I'm reminded of the hierarchy of, of marketing or sort of the, the hierarchy of, 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 of marketing importance. So it starts with text and then, and sort of marketing influence, I should say, hierarchy of marketing influence. So it starts with text, and then it, an order of magnitude better is audio. And an order of magnitude better, again, is video. And what makes film so powerful is that it's all three. Yeah. You get text, audio, and video all playing an equal part 
in compelling you. And that's why film has, in my opinion, the power to, to change minds and change, change the world. Um, you have a three film series and it sort of lasts year round. Can you explain the series? I think it's MOS docs, top docs and global perspectives. Yeah. So, um, the, the top doc series was actually here before I got here. It's actually a six film, um, selections over the course of six months. It's a, it's a highlight, one of the best documentaries that's going to be released in the coming months. Uh, and it's the Calgary premiere. What we wanted to do after I got here is we wanted to expand on that. Um, and so we had global perspectives, which is a six film series, uh, that brings global, uh, perspectives and world cinema, um, to the festival. It's kind of also a way for us to highlight films that didn't time out right yeah. to play the festival proper. Um, but it still allows us to put our stamp of approval on those films. And then um, most docs or MOS docs is actually music on screen uh, documentaries. It's a play on, uh, we have a music on screen series during the festival uh, always plays well. And we created that in partnership with um, the national music center, which is based here in Calgary. We actually utilize their uh, theatrical space to screen the films. It has been, the one that's been put on pause during um, the pandemic, but knock wood after this festival, I have meetings with them to try to bring it back to life uh, now that we don't have capacity issues because um, the theatrical space there is not gigantic. And when you lower the capacity uh, for social distancing, there just weren't enough tickets to sell to make it possible. But we do hope to bring it back to life because uh, prior to the pandemic, we sold it every single available ticket to every single movie in that series, which oh, was, wow. was pretty incredible. Just proof of how popular music docs are here. Yeah. And I'm, I read that. I was kind of surprised too. Like I, I get it in Nashville, why music is always sort of layered in with the festival down here. Uh, but uh, I learned something new about, about Calgary. I, I didn't know it was, it was that popular. Uh, you also have a special feature section, sort of the, I guess it's called the Alberta Spotlight. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, that is where we celebrate our um, provincial filmmakers. Um, and uh, like last year, uh, it was six features. This year, it's actually looking like I made, uh, we may have room for more. Uh, yeah. Because Brenda um, Lieberman, who is my programmer uh, for that series, uh, has been saying that the Alberta films have just been some of the best that she's seen so far wow. uh, from across Canada. But yeah, it's really cool because um, people may know this, that like the film industry is booming here uh, in Calgary and Alberta. We have uh, HBO's filming The Last of Us here. Oh, wow. um, the Fraggle Rock, the, the reboot was made <laughs> here. Um, and uh, the, the, the um, show Joe Pickett, the Western, uh, it doesn't even air in Canada. It only airs in the States, but it's filmed here. Right. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, in fact, actually, we're, we have more productions than we have crews. And they're actually having to like bring crew members in from BC, from Manitoba to help work on all of these shows. But what's happened, too, as that boom has occurred is our local talent has also been able to like really raise the creativity. And so the Alberta spotlight is our opportunity to highlight those feature narratives, feature documentaries and short films that are made right here in the province. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. We've had several people on from Canada and the provinces on our podcast and they, they're all remarkable talents. Uh, you, you talk about the local talent right as you left 
NAF, the Nashville Film Festival, you had done so well that it started to grow and grow and grow. And I know just being on the ground as someone who makes films in this in the state of Tennessee and, and has, you know, EP'd and produced those films, that there was a sense that NAF was trying to grow and it wasn't great for local filmmakers or that, that, that it was tough to walk that line. What would... And maybe that's the situation now, right as you left. So, you know, what advice would you have to to executive directors and artistic directors to balance the desire, the need, the goal to grow the festival without abandoning the local filmmaking scene? Well, I think what we do here and what we tried to do in Nashville, and I'll get to that in a second, um, is we actually said, Create an allotment. In other words, there's always going to be an expected amount of space uh, for locally made films. And also be prepared for that allotment to grow as the talent and creativity grows. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing you also have to make sure that you get out into the world and do so in a respectful and proper way is there's never going to be enough space for every film made to get in. Yeah. Um, and um, Sometimes it means taking, I don't want to say taking turns, but you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I know, I know for instance, I had a film filmmaker in Nashville who remained nameless, who was furious one year when they didn't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually took it to one of our board members and he actually ended up backing me up by saying, I've seen all of your movies. This isn't a good one. <laughs> so you know and, but but i think what yeah. happens too and I, I've, I've seen this happen i saw it happen in india i saw it happen in nashville and i haven't yet seen it here but i haven't been here long enough yet to see it happen is there's when there's some some people actually get it in their head that like i always get in yeah. and what happens is they start resting on their laurels they start almost like oh, it's a movie it'll get in that festival and once they do that you know that's where you almost need as an artistic director to, to like pull the rug out from underneath them and challenge them. Um, because you know, it's kind of like, okay, now it's been four years in a row, but I can also see now you're kind of making the same movie every year. Yeah. You're going to have to stop doing that. If you want to keep getting in, um, challenge yourself, do something different. In fact, what I would rather see is someone do something radically different. Um, and even if that fails, (laughs) <laughs> and I don't want to say, but, was, but but at least I can say, okay, you tried to stretch yourself there, and I yeah. can, I've got to respect that. Than just saying like, oh, look, it's another romantic comedy by that person, you right. know, like <laughs> like. Um, so that's really the advice that I give out to local filmmakers. But I do think that it's our responsibility to keep an ear to the ground and to keep our eyes open to the region and expand the space for local programming. Um, when needed. Um, what, but one thing too, that I think is always, um, like, uh, what was it? It was a movie that I saw at TIFF one year and a, a filmmaker friend who also had a movie in that festival, didn't care for it. And he's like, see, they play this movie in this section and it just takes a spot away from an independent movie. And I'm kind of like, actually, no. So like, um, one thing that everybody should know is the way that we actually program a festival is we have special presentations and uh, global perspectives. Mm-hmm. 
Um, those films specifically come from distributors and studios. They're not, when we play Parasite, that didn't take a spot away from an Alberta filmmaker. Um, because Plus Parasite's those are amazing. So, yeah. Well, right, exactly. Yeah. But, um, but, but it doesn't take it because you, Alberta filmmaker, you're not competing with Bong Joon-ho <laughs> for right. a spot in our film festival. Um, that's, so it's kind of like also rest assured that that's not the way that works. We actually have spef- specified spaces for, uh, for those films and they don't compete that way. And that's really one of the things that I think people should know is um, X and Y are not competing against another. Like, you know, um, we're not going to have a, a doc feature is not going to lose out to a narrative feature because they have their specified spaces in the festival. Got that's, it. I guess, the way of putting it. That's really well put. And you know, speaking of always reaching out to that community and fostering that community, I really love this program called Generation Next. So can you talk about Generation Next? That's super cool. Yeah, I really love this program. It actually started the year before I got here, but we've been working together with um, uh, Adam, who is my um, shorts programmer, but he also helps me oversee Generation Next we get a selection of films that are actually geared largely toward an audience of high school students and that age. Uh, and then we have this year, there's eight um, high school students that actually help us program uh, that section. So they watch them and every two weeks we meet, um, we discuss the films, they talk amongst themselves. And actually it's next, the next meeting is they'll finalize their lineup of the six films they want to select for the festival. And then we work with the education community to highlight those films. Uh, and then um, we knock wood, you know, assuming there's not any weird pandemic things again, um, we're actually going to have in-person field trips. Uh, so high schools can then bring classes in to view those films. Wow. Uh, and we'll also have, we've got a teacher on staff who also creates an education packet that the teacher can take after they've seen the film. And then the class can actually discuss uh, the merits and meaning of the work. And it usually, it's sort of a combination of documentaries about science, social issues. Um, they love French language narratives for French classes and uh, films that speak to um, the lives of the uh, First Nations people from the region. Um, because it's always part of the, the lessons uh, here uh, in school. So um, it will vary because there's also usually just a couple narratives about the stresses of high school life and teenage yeah. life. Um, those don't necessarily get the same amount of field trips, but we also want to respect that that's what the young people want to program. Um, it's really exciting. It's just, I mean, I love those meetings um, with the 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 young people because they're so vibrant and they're so energetic and they're so passionate about movies. We have to kind of keep them guided because one of them will remind them like, Oh yeah. Did you hear so-and-so was making another movie? Yeah. And they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll get off on their excitement, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really cool program. And um, I just think the experiences that they're getting is sort of helping lay the foundation for the next generation of programmers. That's kind of my hope for it. Yeah. I think it's great. I think it's worth the price of a badge if you were a filmmaker or a producer for that alone, because the ability to see what a younger uh, generation, uh, a younger viewer finds interesting and the topics they find uh, they identify with, they find most salient is, is critical viewing uh, so that, you know, sort of 
what you need to make if you're trying to target that audience. And that audience is important to target because that's the target audience that is mobile and they have sort of indiscriminate funds and they, you know, don't have a mortgage perhaps. And, you know, they (laughs) spend that money on movies. And so to me, if I were a filmmaker or a producer, I would want to have a badge just to see those films so I could better understand it. You know, uh, people have asked me in the past casually investment advice And one of the simplest things I can say to them is watch what young people do with uh, their lives. Just watch them in a non-creepy way, of course. But if you're at an airport (laughs) and you see a 15-year-old doing something, look over their shoulder. What app are they using? What device? Um, What are they watching and why? And then you know where the zeitgeist is moving. And in a way, Generation Next does precisely that. So kudos uh, for for growing that and keeping it keeping it growing and and, and going. Uh, Curious about this. How does grant funding differ in Canada versus the U.S.? Um, First, I sort of say it's not my specialty, but I do actually help uh, with Mm -hmm. the the grants. the, the, the biggest difference far and away is um, there's so much more government support um, mm. here, not just for the film festival world, but for filmmakers themselves, um, especially on the documentary side. A good number of the, the, the documentaries I end up programming do have backing from the National Film Board uh, and also Telefilm Canada. Um, it's just it's it's it's. A stronger belief here that cinema is an art form to be preserved, to be celebrated, um, and to be equalized. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, um, David Cronenberg doesn't need right government support to make his film, but the um, woman um, from the Kainai First Nation who has her idea, you know, she may need that type of support to get off right. the ground. And, um, and, and, and she, and she gets that support here. And that's one of the things that I, that, um, that I love about having moved up here is just seeing that level, um, of, of support. And, you know, when we, when the, the pandemic did hit, um, of course, everyone was afraid. And I know that even in the States government was being, you know, was helping, but, um, the amount of support that we were able to get, uh, you know, it basically helped make up for that rev- lost revenue from ticket sales. Oh, wow. um, and, um, it, you know, it kept the organization afloat and it was smart in the sense that it, I think it's an understanding that like, you know, yeah, we throw a film festival and yeah, we get ticket revenue, but there's an understanding that events like ours, no one, some people do, but most people don't just come and see a movie and then turn around and go back home. They, stop off for a coffee on the way into the movie. And then they meet up with a friend after and they go out for dinner and drinks after that movie. And that extra money that they spend in the community, you know, is, is a job creator. It creates, you know, it's not, I guess, um, it just, it's a, it's an economic impact, right? It grows, not just us, not just what we do. It helps spread wealth that helps spread jobs and um there's more of an understanding of that here you know it's it's kind of funny like back in my days when i was in, in the indianapolis international film festival there was a like 
I lost audience one night because they just found out that the governor was going to be cutting what little film incentives the state of Indiana had. Wow. Uh, and so a lot of the people from that industry were just kind of like, can't go to the movie. Sorry, urgent. And it literally, the, the governor's wording basically sounded like, well, that's just putting taxpayers dollars into Tom Cruise's pocket. And there, there's, and it's uh, that's kind of what they, there's. There's there is a belief amongst some, and, and they can cross party lines actually. So I'm not going to make it a political thing. That, that's what that what tax incentives do because they don't think about the fact. And I also get this speaking of my mother in history and movies. My mother catered um, for the movie Hoosiers, like on set, like she was a caterer. And like when people talk about incentives for the film industry, they don't think about the caterer, right? They don't think about the hairdresser. They don't think about the makeup artist. You know, all those people live in your community. And when a production comes to your community, that brings work. And similarly, when we bring a film-based event here, it spreads throughout the community as well. And that's, I think, one of the things that I love about being here now is that's more understood here, that that it's just, it's, it's, when, you have this sort of activity. Everybody gets to participate and it benefits more than just the film festival, more than just that film production. It's a wonderful point. And I love that films now at the end of their credits, and maybe they should put it maybe earlier in the credits, ending credits, but I love that films now more often are saying this film created 6,000 jobs. This film created X amount of jobs. That's real economic impact. And by the way, Tom Cruise might be the last real superstar movie star as the way I grew up True. understanding what a movie star was. A movie star was someone who didn't show up in a, in a sitcom on TV. First of all, right. the first thing, so they, there's a line, there's a principle, a line of demarcation. doesn't matter what the check is for your TV series. I'm a movie star. There was like a pride you had in it. And if anybody's going to get our tax dollars, <laughs> it probably should be Tom Cruise because he never misses, and he brings a lot of joy that's immeasurable to so many people worldwide. Like he, right. the movies are, you know, a, uh, just par excellence in in every way for an action film without leaning too heavily on uh, comic book IP or CGI. I mean, he's. He's putting it all on the line and look, everybody will line up around the corner to watch him run full speed. Right. Just, just watch Tom Cruise run as fast as he can run. It is funny though, that you began the conversation talking about my, my hometown of Danville and mm-hmm. my high school years, but it, it struck me. I, I saw a meme the other day that, that cracked me up that like Top Gun is the number one movie uh, in theaters and Kate yeah. Bush is the number one song. I'm like, my God, it's like I'm in high school again. <laughs> <laughs> we've gone, we've gone back in time. And the gap between the two is unbelievable. So we know that the opening day for Top Gun was like 156 million. And then yeah. the next one down was Dr. Strange at like 20 million. That is right. a, that is probably a record for money or revenue between number one and number two movie in the box office. And uh, even this week, I think it was 86 million for Top Gun and 9 million for Dr. Strange, who's yeah. number two. That's a right. massive gap between number one and number two. It's, it's a blowout. And so there's just something about that movie and that cast and that soundtrack and all those things 
that really resonated with so many people. And uh, I'm kind of glad it was a home run because I love the theater experience. And I've been on record saying this many times, which is I still find the theater to be the one of the few places a filmmaker can get fair market value for their work. Uh, When you compare the split at the door between the box office and and the filmmaker uh, versus the six or nine cents you get, I think it's six cents you get for every 90 minutes watched on Amazon, which I've always said is class action lawsuit worthy, uh, assuming their studio didn't buy it straight out. Right. Right. So um, anyway, Moving, <laughs> moving forward, uh, you've always said, uh, or, or I think you've been quoted as saying that you guys at SIF have radical in, uh, uh, inclusivity. I've heard of inclusivity, radical in, inclusivity. What is that? Uh, it's, it's something that we honestly um, say to remind ourselves that you have to take that extra step. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's one thing from a programming perspective to, to have a diverse program. In fact, it's not the hardest thing in the world to do. Like we just make sure as we start approving films, like are we covering every continent? Are we making sure that we're meeting gender equity goals? Are we making sure that people of color are properly represented? Yeah. Um, that part is, that's, for me, that's the easy part. Now, how do we go further to make sure that, that all the members of our community, all the people that make up Calgary feel that this festival belongs to them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not going to say that we're perfect at it. I'll never say that we're perfect at it by any means, but I think it's just, we always have to remind ourselves that you've got to take that, that extra step uh, to make sure that all the people say that's my festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we really strongly want to, to, to reach that. And I think, so when I say radical inclusivity, I think it's really a goal more than it is an achievement. Yeah. Um, because it just, it's, it's a way of reminding yourself, like there's always more to do. There's always Ongoing, another step yeah. to take. Yeah. What are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far and who did they come from? Um, the, well, one actually was my, uh, my former executive director, Sally Main in, uh, Nashville. And it's always to remember that the professional don't take the professional personally. Mm. Um, and it came from like a, a, an incident that I don't want to delve into, but it was a good reminder that like, if there's a professional argument, right. It doesn't, don't, don't let that become a personal argument. Yeah. So like walk out of the office, let it go. Uh, and I was kind of like, ah, that's really good. And I've, I've really tried to, uh, maintain that at all times. Um, and the other one, and I'm gonna forget, I know her, I remember her last name was Owens. That's the easy part. Um, I do not remember her first name because I never got to meet her in person. It was a relationship that I always had over email or phone. Yeah. And um, uh, it was basically learn, learn how and when to pick the fight. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a movie that we had, we were days away from printing the program in Indianapolis. And I mean days away. Uh, and it was going to be my opening night film and the studio pulled it on me. Oh, wow. Um, and basically it was through the, the representative between me and the studio. And she's the one that was just like, you got to let it go. <laughs> like you're not going to win. Mm. So don't pick that fight. Yeah. She was like, if you want movies from that studio in the future, you just got to take a deep breath, 
She's like, I'll do my best to help you get another opening night film. We'll work together on that. But you're not going to win a fight with the studio, man. <laughs> right. I'm like, you know, you're right. And so, yeah, that's kind of been one of those things too. Is I just sort of like learn to uh, strive for things. And, and while that still really upset me when I, like my blood boils a little bit to this day, when somebody cancels a film three days before I'm supposed to go to print, um, hasn't happened like that since just so you know, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, but, but it also means like, like it's, it's, you know, uh, David doesn't always slay Goliath. Sometimes David survives by knowing not to, to start the fight in the first place. Right. So, right. um, yeah. And so that was, a, it was a good piece of advice because it just, it also meant that like you knew how to target your emotions properly and also then, um, take that, that energy, that, that, that anger that comes with something upsetting and focus it release it and then use that energy to do something else um, and, and fix the situation. So it basically led me to being very much now a solutions-based person Yeah. instead of like, a, instead of focusing on the blame situations occur, mistakes are made. Um, don't panic about it first, get the solution, then go back and figure out how not to make the mistake again, or, you know, how, how to prevent that from happening. Um, just an example we had, um, one film that we had to, we were able to screen it later. We rescheduled it, but there was a glitch in a file mm. um, that resulted in one show. We had to cancel that show, but again, we were able to reschedule it for later in the festival. But we just, instead of like, okay, we got it rescheduled. That's fixed. So we spent the time after the festival now creating a, a zero cancellation policy that it uh. is our goal that we will not have any shows canceled ever again. Now, what are the steps that we need to take? What's the technology we need? Do we need to adjust the schedule? Do we need, so, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. that's, that's the way I didn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't about who didn't check that file. You know, it, it was about, like, it happened. We got the second screening back on now that that festival's over. How do we make sure that never happens again? And so it was really those kind of like those two pieces of advice that sort of led me to be like, yeah. <laughs> it's okay to get angry, but, 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 you know, when things happen, but let it, let that part go, get your solution and then make sure those situations don't happen in the future. Well, it's a brilliant point because some of these things have become cliche to the point where they lose their meaning, even though they're very powerful. I mean, I think anything that becomes a cliche has so much truth in it that that's how it became a cliche, right? This idea of, Hey, be willing to lose the battle to win the war and, and all this stuff. But it's hard for people to put it in practice almost because the cliche is said too often where you just kind of nod like, yeah, I got it. I got it. But yep. people still ignore it and aren't good at it. And it comes down to, you know, understanding which hill you want to die on. Like, do you want to die on this little hill where, where there's a bigger <laughs> yeah. hill that's way more important, you know, keep your right. eye on the prize. What's your focus? And I think for you, Brian, it's like, look, my focus is to run a great festival. I can't die on this hill. I can't, I can't afford it. Too many people are counting on me. Um, what people might know about you, but, but there's a chance they don't is that you're a screenwriter and you studied film at Indiana university and you have a huge creative side that, that uh, should not go unspoken in this conversation. So with that being said, what are the, uh, or who are the creatives you most admire and, and want to emulate and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that sets them apart? It's really interesting that you would say that. 
Uh, yeah, because I did write a few screenplays, never got produced. So I'm not going to say that like that's it wasn't my profession to be a screenwriter, but I did write screenplays. <laughs> um, I actually do have one that uh, probably after this festival is over. Um, uh, it's for a short that I'm, I think I'm going to try to produce and pursue. Oh, awesome. Um, there's uh, a couple of individuals that I've got to reach out to. I want them to, to, to make it like the way I envision it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say their names now because I haven't reached out to them yet. So. Um, <laughs> Got it. But um, no, I always, I always admire the screenwriters in general, but I mentioned, talked to her earlier. I think Pedro Moldovar writes a screenplay that just, I don't know. You can just feel the passion, you know, like that coming through every film and you know, it begins with his words. Like that's the thing that I love about, um, his movies, a lot of people always think about the central visuals of, of his work. And I do admire those, mm-hmm. but his words are just so short. It's, it's, it's almost where you feel like, like each word was the exact right choice. Like even down to the articles, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, like, yeah, there's just something beautiful about, about, um, the way he writes. I just, I, I, I love it. Can't say that I was ever that good by any means. <laughs> Obviously, they would have been produced if they were that good. Um, yeah, like even from my college days, um, working at the video store and started checking his early stuff out. Um, yeah, he's been easily one of my favorite uh, writers from that perspective. From a visual perspective, I've always been a Scorsese fan. I love the way that his movies are paced. I love the way they look. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've always found his work remarkable. And... Um, um, uh, and uh, bah, 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 why am I spacing on this name? George, George, George Miller, right? Mm. Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Um, yeah. Babe Pig in the City. I love a guy that can like be that all over the place mm-hmm. um, with the movies he makes. It's kind of funny. Like people um, think like, oh, you're a film festival guy. You all you like is like artsy fartsy movies. And <laughs> it was one of those. I recently got surveyed. Like what was the best film of the 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 past decade for like, and it's funny in the sense that like the one that just kind of kept rising and rising and rising for me, because every time it would pop on TV, I'm kind of like, okay, I'll finish watching this. No matter where I would catch it is Mad Max Fury Road just draws me in every single damn time I see it. Yeah. Like I have to like stop what I'm doing and just like, I'm finishing this journey again. Like I, I just, and so it was one of those things where I saw the movie in the theaters, enjoyed it. Um, and <laughs> it was it never in my brain at that time, at that day of having seen it, would I have expected that it would be the movie that just keeps sticking with me and keeps sticking with me because yeah. it's, it's so simple, but I also think it's those um, uh, practical visual effects that do something that just like, that draws you in. Right. Like yeah. they were actually, that guy was swinging around on that thing with that guitar. Like that wasn't all CGI. Like they do right. really. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, I don't know. So those are, those are three people that I really admire. Yeah, I always admire that too because it's like it's not that it's um you know it's more expensive to do the CGI. It's but it's it it takes more ingenuity to do it without the CGI. So I always yeah. appreciate appreciate that. Uh I'd love to go down hypothetical road with you here, Brian. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if someone came to you and wanted to do what you did in 2004, uh what would be and they had no prior experience, what would be the first three things you'd teach them about having to, or how to start a film festival? Um, 
it was interesting that uh, you asked that because I've actually been asked. Like I've actually had a couple. There was a couple of students from um, University Miami University Ohio uh, in Oxford, Ohio. They asked me about that, um, and I've been asked uh, from a couple other people. The first thing I would say is, and keep in mind, we originally thought it was going to be the 2003 Indianapolis International Film Festival. <laughs> uh, I would say if you are going to start something, if your hometown uh, doesn't have an event and you're interested in doing it, it's 2022. You're not going to get a festival off the ground until 2024. Got Learn it. that, accept that now. Give yourself at least two years to do all the footwork that you're going to need. Because mm-hmm. um, one, you need to find a financial backer whether that's a corporate sponsor or like I was fortunate to find a foundation backer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other two things that you need um, is you need media support. Um, Because in those first years, the odds of you raising enough money to have a true marketing budget are probably pretty slim. Mm -hmm. So um, I actually had had, um, back in Indianapolis, I got buy-in from the star um, from uh, Bonnie Britton. She was the lead critic at the time and she pledged coverage um, Nouveau, which is the alternative news weekly, uh, signed on as a, uh, as a newspaper sponsor and actually, um, would support the printing of our program. And, uh, we had a independent radio station, 92.3 WTTS out of Bloomington, Indiana, but also played in Indianapolis, signed on as a radio sponsor. So I had advertising in place and coverage in place a whole year before the event actually happened. Wow, And it was that that also helped bring in some of those extra sponsorship funds because they knew that like, okay, my logo is going to at least show up in these places. I know that's going to happen. So if you take the time um, to allow yourself to take those steps, um, you'll find that in two years, I think you can lay the foundations um, to actually get your event off the ground. But yeah, the biggest piece is give yourself at least two years and accept that it's going to take that long. Um, you just, a lot of people think it's just throwing movies on a screen and it's so much more than that. Yeah. So I don't know if we got to three, but we got to two very important ones, which are give yourself to oh, your yeah. runway <laughs> minimum and get media support uh, right away. Yeah. And, and, and don't expect a paycheck. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've spoken about that before um, about the need to sort of work for free or salary free for the, in the beginning to get to where you want initially. And it's a big debate even amongst filmmakers, which is this idea of should I get paid what I'm worth if I'm going to be crew or edit or whatever, and, and I have no experience or should I just try to hop onto someone's short film and say, Hey, I think you're, my, my advice, Brian has been go to a 48 or go to a 54, look at the films that were almost there, but not quite there. Uh, especially in your field of expertise. So, if you're an editor, look for the film that could have been great had you had they had a better editor. And then just go yeah. and introduce yourself to that filmmaker and work that first next film for free. But yeah. some people hate that idea. Well, I think the other thing, too, though, is um, people that want to pursue sort of an all-around career mm-hmm. um, in film. Yeah, so if, if, if you have an area of expertise but you want to do more, I do think that's where, like, um, if you're an editor, but you want to be a director, mm-hmm. get paid to edit because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, but if you want to be a director, you probably want to accept the fact that like, if you want to sign on and you haven't directed yet, you're not going to get paid for that yet. 
Yeah. Um, like, and the, the other advice that I do give uh, a lot of filmmakers uh, is learn how to edit. Um, it actually is something that, that it doesn't make you an expert right away, but you can eventually it's, you can self-teach edit. edit yeah. You know, like a lot of software now is, is, um, I think a lot of people can be self-taught editors, um, but the better you get at that, editing work is is is, is just out there everywhere. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's one of yeah. those fields. That you, TV needs editing. Web series need editing. Movies need editing. Like you know, it's, it's need the one thing. So, <laughs> yeah, podcasts need editing. But yeah, I mean, you can yeah. if you can learn that skill, that's how you can sort of pay the bills while you try to pursue other creative pursuits. Um, and so that's kind of what I always think. Like I, I always tell people now, and this is one of my favorite things because if, when I was first doing this, this wasn't true. Um, but I really think jobs in film and television, the creative industries are growing more secure, mm-hmm. um, than a lot of other jobs because a lot of other jobs can get automated. A lot of like, you yeah. know, you know, truck drivers are probably going to be out of work in the coming years as, as self-driving vehicles become more and more practical, but robots haven't figured out how to make entertainment yet. (laughs) So, um, you know, and we all want entertainment everywhere around the globe. We want to be entertained. And I I think it's actually, like I said, it's becoming one of the more stable uh, fields to work in as long as you've got the skill sets. Right. And as long as I think you're adaptable, um, and it's interesting in the sense too that like even though um there's there would sort of be a suggestion i see that little articles pop up like this like what is the purpose of film festivals anymore um and i think in many ways as all of this content keeps getting created and there's so many apps and channels and uh streams everywhere i think curation actually even becomes that much more important because I'm still one of those people that I can sit down if I've got some free time and I'll pop on Netflix, spend 45 minutes scrolling through everything and then decide that I didn't want to watch it yet. You know, like I yeah. get overwhelmed by choice. Paradox and of choice. So yep. curation. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think, I think curation actually becomes more important as more options are available. Um, it's funny cause I still get this here and I got it in Nashville it's like, you have too many movies to choose from. <laughs> oh, sorry, we do, want to, we do want you to have some choice. Um, but believe me, it's not the 3,600 movies that were submitted. You know, we at least got those down to a couple hundred. Movies, right, so. right. And I think also when you're making a film, it's an opportunity to collaborate with people. I think people deeply want to collaborate with other people and feel like they belong. And film, a film is so hard and so collaborative that by the end of it, that's your new family. Like yeah. you're, you're bonded with those people forever. Uh, you know, as, as Sebastian younger, uh, has said in his book tribe, it's kind of like you went through something together that was life threatening. And so therefore you're bonded in that, you know, for, yeah. for life. Uh, before we let you go, I got to lean on your expertise. I mean, how many times do I have someone on the podcast that watches a thousand movies a year like you do. Uh, so a couple of quick questions. Uh, when a movie is close to being good or great, but not quite good or great, what is it typically missing in your opinion? Uh, actually it's the reverse 
of that. It's not what it's missing. It's usually too much of a good thing. Ah. Um, and um, I'm going to use a, a, a great example. Um, it was my last year in Indianapolis. Uh, there was a short film submitted uh, called Detroit Unleaded. And it was literally at this back when things were still on DVD. So it was like literally in the pile for last for final consideration. Yeah. Um, and it was 27 minutes long, which for a short film is on the longer side. It's longer side. Yeah. Um, and I was rooting for her because she was an Arab American female filmmaker. And then at that time, that was not a voice that was being heard from. And when I looked at that and a couple others that were there, I'm like, ah, quality wise, they're all about equal but I can put these two in versus the one uh, with all the slots that I've got left. And so, so I wrote her a very long, um, the, the kindest rejection email that I could conceivably write. Um, in it, I told her two things. One as a short, it's just too long. Um, and it, it's lagging in the second act, um, you know, cause short films frequently are three acts. You know, they follow the three act structure as features frequently do as well. And I said, there's, I said, yeah, I think you have two options. I was like, cut at least nine minutes out of this. Get it down to an 18 minute short. Yes. And then I think you'll see it get picked up. So the other thing that I recommend is go the opposite direction. This is a feature and you're trying to squeeze it down too much. So you've got either one got too much for a short or you actually need to pad this out you know, and expand the character stories a little bit and, and turn it into a feature. Lo and behold, uh, TIFF 2009 announces their lineup. And in the discovery section is Detroit Unleaded, the feature <laughs> film world premiering. And I wrote her again, um, invited her to Nashville. She was in my new director's competition. And it was just such a thrill um, to play that small part. I'm not, I'm not taking any credit there, but I just want to say that like, but just to know that I got to be a small part of her journey uh, into making that happen. And, um, but that's where like, say, like um, I guess sometimes what it's missing is to answer the question. Sometimes it's too much. Sometimes it's not enough, but um, when you see it, you kind of know. And if it's special enough, I do try to take that moment to reach out and, and, and yeah. say my, say my piece to where I think this is what you can do to get it to where it, it, it's, it, it's almost there. If you just do this little thing, uh, I think you'll, you'll be able to get what you want out of, out of it. Um, I agree with you yes. too, because, you know, I was taught that I have a journalism degree and marketing degree, and I was taught that in, in J school, the, the, the language and words, storytelling is, is, the words are essential. You need to, you need to boil it down to the essential. And if you can go through and pull out words and not lose meaning, you, you know, you have bloat. And it is funny that you mentioned that. And, uh, and I didn't catch that in my own question asking, which is something that I say all the time that I got from journalism school, which is half and half. And the idea is that you, you take, um, it was an assignment a professor gave the class, which is he would take an article or a series of articles that he had handpicked, selected, and he would hand it out and say, cut this article in half without losing meaning. And these would be published articles just to right, show right. how much bad writing is actually out there. 
and we would cut it in half. And then we would think, whew, that assignment's over. That was really hard. And then he'd say, okay, cut it in half again. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be like, okay. And usually, you usually couldn't do that. And he knew we wouldn't be able to cut it in half again. Right. But the fact that there were times where you could go half and half just shows you, you know, sort of how much bad writing and bloat is out there, but also as a creative, what you should be trying to attain, which is the essential uh, parts of a story. Uh, yeah. Is there a film, again, as a guy who's watched so many movies, is there a film that you thought would do better or that people would love more than they actually did? Oh, that's a good question. Um, here's actually the, the movie that I, I think got short shrift. Um, although the people who did see it loved it. So I'm going to say that um, where it lacked love is it should have just been seen by more people. Mm-hmm. And that was the movie uh, Sing Street, yeah. uh, John Carney's third film. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had it at Nashville. Um, it, was a, it was a hit there. Um, everybody who saw it loved it. And then it just sputtered out of the gate and no one saw it when it like went into theaters. And it's just such a shame because I, I have the Blu-ray. Um, I recommend it to friends all the time still. And everyone who sees it loves it. So go watch Sing Street. <laughs> That's I like, haven't seen I it. Like now, I have just... my, now I have a movie to take with me into the weekend. I have not seen that. Yeah. So, there yeah. you go. It is just pure joy. Um, I still like, I'm jogged to the soundtrack to this day. And it's like a five-year movie. <laughs> <so. laughs> I will check it out. And uh, this has been incredible, Brian. I, I, I can't tell you how much I've, appreciated having you on and I knew I would learn a ton and you've even exceeded that expectation. Uh, You are a guy who likes to take on things and you've been successful everywhere you've gone. I mean, beyond, you know, anyone's wildest dreams. um, Certainly those who brought you in and hired you. Uh, Do you see a place down the road where, where you're going to need another challenge? You know, what's, what's next for Brian Owens and, uh, by the way, have you ever considered running for office as well? I did think about politics for a while, but uh, decided, um, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I actually said this in my interview for this job that like, I did five years in Indianapolis. I did 10 years in Nashville. I feel like I have to do 15 years. It takes me to retirement. So, um, but um, I, I think when I think about that though, what for me is about what would I do after retirement? Um, and I don't think I would really actually retire. Like that's like, for me, it just doesn't seem like a thing. I might go on more vacations afterward, but I think I would still want to do, uh, something. And I think it would have to stay, it would have to stay in the creative realm. Like I might be a little old, but you know, I've got a lot of friends who are producers and I feel like that might be a game I could get into. Um, I don't call it a game. That's insulting to their work. So, I yeah, I, mean, I, I think like... I think everything's a game. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, some games are more serious and, and and fun than others. That's all. Yeah, true. Yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I, that's where I, I I think after after this part of of, of my career is over, I, I do want to stay involved in some way, shape, or form, and I think that's probably the realm I would go into selectively. Like, I don't think I would be trying to do 
six movies a year or anything crazy like that, but like, you know, supporting a movie every couple of years and, and doing some of the legwork. And I have, you know, that's one of the things too, where I've fortunately built connections, you know, over the now 19 years that I've been doing this, um, or 18 years. And so, yeah, like, I, I think I can help with some of those connections that I've developed, like to find someone who is ready to burst out onto the scene and maybe like my expertise can help them find everything they need to get their works across the finish line. Yeah. I mean, you're one of the handful of guys around the world that I think could get a movie made in a heartbeat as long as they had um, a greenlit script, a script that was a nine or a 10. Uh, like, and those are really difficult to find by the way, folks, uh, for those listening. Oh, yeah. Um, it's one of the things I lament about my job the most, especially on sort of the investment producing side, which is that sort of I'm in the business of changing people's lives and, and helping them make their films. But what that really means is I'm in the business of saying no. And yeah. it's really, it takes a lot out of you to say no 99 out of a hundred times. It oh, yeah. takes a lot out of you. It, it depresses you that you are saying no to people so often and uh, it's, it's difficult. So uh, I, I, but who, but you, Brian would be able to get a nine or a 10 script that either you wrote yourself or that uh, you were able to bring on. So I'm looking forward to sort of this next adventure of yours in the world of filmmaking, regardless of what, what role you play. Uh, I know uh, you have the connections. You're going to do great. Uh, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the internet, how they can buy badges and tickets uh, for Calgary International? Yeah. So uh, our website is sifcalgary.ca, C-I-F-F calgary.ca. Uh, early bird bundles are on sale now, actually. So uh, if you plan on coming to join us, uh, you can get them cheaper right now. Um, and yes, yeah, Sif Calgary is our handle pretty much across uh, Instagram, um, uh, TikTok, is it my, my <laughs> social media managers. I can see her through the office window. Um, and uh, also on Facebook. So yeah, Calgary International Film Festival or Sif Calgary um, is there everywhere. Um, I'm terrible social media personally, but uh, you people can find me through the website and uh, get in touch with me that way. Perfect. Is there any email address or, or handle if they want to reach out to you directly? Yeah, it's uh, brian.owens at sifcalgary.ca and I certainly welcome any uh, emails asking for advice, not money, but advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an old saying in business, if you want money, uh, um, well, if you want advice, ask for money. Yeah. If you want it, and if you want money, ask for advice. So there you go. Always, always start at the, at the most humble place. Brian, I think we'll end on this. Can you tell everybody the Alan Tipper Gore story? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is a great story, Chris. Um, so this is actually my first year, uh, at Nashville film festival and, um, the, uh, Al Gore sponsored an award. Um, it was for like environmental uh, filmmaking and um, um, it, there was a delay that first year. So we had to keep the filmmaker around. And so this is the day after teardown. So I've done the first like 10 day festival. I'm exhausted. I have to get up the next morning and actually put a suit on and, and go meet former vice president Al Gore and uh, our, our filmmaker to present the award. 
Um, and that all like goes well. It was really exciting. It was a pleasure to meet him. Um, it was very kind. And but my favorite part of where the story goes is um, after Alan Tipper had their separation, um, there was a, this fascinating opportunity uh, with Nashville Film Festival, and um, we were contacted about lending support for a red carpet screening of Inglorious Bastards. Um, uh, we were invited to you know, ask by Al Gore to do this. And I thought it was the strangest thing, but the, the tie <laughs> there is Lawrence Bender was the producer of Inconvenient Truth and Inglorious Bastards. So it was, yeah. that's where the tie-in came. But um, the best part of the story is uh, there's a party at the greenhouse after the premiere's over. And um, I'm waiting there with my partner, Michael, and um, Al Gore comes through. And um, like I introduced Michael, and uh, to, I'm, this is, I'm doing my impression of Michael's impression of Al Gore, just so everybody knows. And um, he says to Michael, he's like, Michael, it's so great to meet you. I love the work your husband does. Um, so that, that, was, that was Michael's impression of, of Al Gore, not, me, not mine. Mine would be better. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, it was a real pleasure. Like he was a, a, a fun person to work with. But the, the, the part of the story that I love the most is the film was called Garbage Dreams. And it was about um, these uh, young men that work uh, as recyclers in the garbage dumps outside of Cairo. Um, so they would pull things out to sell, they would pull plastic out, things like that. Um, and there's also a school for those young men um, that right, you're kind of born into this profession. And that's what the documentary was about. And so Cut to, so Al Gore sees the film at National Film Festival. So this is the serious part of the story. Um, he actually then passes the film over to Bill and Melinda Gates. And uh, to the surprise of my Iskander, the filmmaker, when it has its Cairo premiere um, uh, in Cairo, so these young men are, are getting to see the film for the first time in front of a local audience, and Mai's over there for the premiere. Um, and Al Gore worked this all up after having the film to Bill and Melinda Gates. Bill and Melinda Gates walk out at the end of the film and actually present that school with a check for $1 million. Wow. Um, so that they can actually build proper facilities and, and help these young men get full educations. And it's just one of those like cool stories that, yeah, okay, I got to meet the former vice president and he was a good guy. But in the end, he's such a good guy that he actually used his networks and his connections to fund an education program, you know, for young men who work in garbage dumps in Cairo. So that to me is also just like one of those stories about how strange the world can be and how wonderful the world can be. I watched a movie. I liked it. I programmed it. It got nominated for the Al Gore Environmental Prize. He liked it so much. He passed it to Bill Gates. Bill Gates liked it so much that he wrote a check for a million dollars to a school. So it's really, I mean, if there's an example of the butterfly effect, there's, that's an example of the butterfly effect. Like one simple thing that you think is just under program a movie. And now, you know, it was like enough to fund that school for almost a hundred years based on what their original budget was. So I just feel like um, it's just one of those great stories about why I love the job so much is, is you never know exactly what your impact can ultimately be. Exactly. And I love the story too, because at first you just were making a film, you're just making a documentary and you don't know what's going to happen through the butterfly effect. Like you said, 
once you make something in the world, once you make it, you've now manifested something that's going to exist for all time in the world. And you don't know what that thing is going to do behind your back when you're not paying attention while you're asleep. (laughs) And then uh, I'm sure that she didn't think that making this documentary would result in a million dollars to this school down the line. And so I think it's a perfect place to end because it it, it perfectly encapsulates, uh, in my opinion, the sentiment and the, the spirit of this conversation. So Brian, thank you again. I I can't uh, uh, thank you enough for the conversation, the time, and we miss you down in Nashville. Come and visit every once in a while. And I'll do everything I can to, to get up to Calgary because I know that's going to be a great festival. Oh, just let me know, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. I had a great time. Great time. Anytime. Tell Michael said what's up and uh, <laughs> well, keep fighting the good fight. All right. You too. Man. Take care. Good. Thanks. Bye.